Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Food for Thought, the podcast that talks about anything and everything as it relates to health and living your best life. We are really opening up the umbrella today and tackling a topic that doesn't seem at first glance to be health related, but stick with us because we promise everyone will benefit, especially mentally and psychologically when we get today's topic right. Today, we are talking about diversity and inclusion. So often those terms are lumped together and there is this assumption that those words mean the same thing, but that's simply not true. In fact, diversity doesn't work without inclusion. Workplace policies have been striving for years to achieve a diverse workforce, one that includes women, people of color, people of varying body types, people from the 2LGBTQ plus community, everyone that we can think of. A really important factor that I think that we've also missed in this conversation is those with learning disabilities. However, even if we achieve that diversity, the question remains, will the business benefit from all the innovations, talent, perspectives, and participation of a diverse workforce if there is not a sense of inclusion from the rest of the workforce or from the leadership themselves? That is, do they feel like they are a part of the group or are they just there to check a box? So yeah, super big topic to undertake. (laughs) So we should probably dive in. Joining me today is my colleague, health promotion specialist, Heather Garreau-Miller. Welcome, Heather. Hello. Thanks. I'm so excited for this conversation. What you said about the question remaining, will a business benefit from diversity if there is not inclusion, really hits home for me. Diversity simply states that there is representation of different communities of people. Inclusion means the organization as a whole celebrates embraces and welcomes that diversity. There's a quote from diversity advocate Verna Myers that speaks to just that. She said, diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being invited to dance. We can all put the people together in the room, but if we don't embrace the power and the strength that that brings, if we continue our implicit and explicit bias, then we are no further ahead. Everyone from leadership to the cleaning crew must be on board to really ignite the capacity and capability of a diverse workforce. Yes, I love the idea of igniting the capacity and capability of a diverse workforce. That's so powerful. And it's such an overlooked aspect of diversity. For many workplaces, they feel they've gotten the check in the box and have done their due diligence in that way by creating this diverse workforce. So check and done and let's get on with business, but they're really missing out, not just by taking that check in the box approach, but by not really fully operationalizing. And I'd like to add benefiting from what inclusion can bring to the table. Alex Herman is the former United States Secretary of Labor said, inclusion and fairness in the workplace is not simply the right thing to do. It's the smart thing to do. We know that companies or organizations that actually embrace diversity and all it can bring have a higher rate of return on investment, higher profitability, lower labor costs, lower turnover, higher job satisfaction, and lower levels of absenteeism. And that seems like a workplace everyone would thrive in and benefit from. And of course, the military, not being an organization that makes widgets or creates these like measurable things, it is for sure a little bit more challenging, but a lot of those things are still going to be as true in our organization as it is in some of these other more traditional corporate styles of of companies. So another one of those $20,000 questions, how do we get to a place where our military community not only simply has a diverse workforce, but actually embraces and then therefore benefits from that diverse workforce? Well, I think the first thing to acknowledge is that there are likely people, sections, or even units that are striving 
to do these things. So I want to reinforce that we are not painting our organization with one big brush. There are always going to be things that workplaces can do to make things better. And this topic today is about being open, open to what we can do better, not what's already being done well. So with that said, there are many steps that can be taken to make employees feel included, irrespective of who they are or as what they identify themselves as. The first thing that comes to mind is the leadership of an organization needs to pave that path. Leaders need to know how to handle a diverse workforce and need to be aware of their own biases and work to overcome them. Two really important points that you bring up there, Heather, that I just want to draw out a little bit. We all have biases, some conscious, like I don't like peas, and others unconscious. Those things that I can't readily identify, but they're there so that when I do have to do something or interact with a person or a situation or whatever affects how I do that, what that behavior that I then exhibit looks like. So that's how that bias, unconscious or conscious affects what we do. We all need to be aware of and open to acknowledging, and then more importantly, doing something about those biases. And leaders are no exception. And if in fact, they need to be the ones that are seen to be taking that proverbial bull by the proverbial horns and walking the walk for others to see that, yes, we can grow and challenge and embrace different things. They absolutely need to be aware of what those biases are that they have. I think that ideally every person wants to work for someone who they respect and are happy to work for. But we also know that you don't get to choose who you work for and you may not like them. But I think that anyone in a leadership position needs to work to earn the respect of their people, even if they're not always the most liked person. They can still be respected in their role. Everyone wants and deserves, I would say, to be valued, to feel heard, and to be recognized on some level. And many people in leadership roles may believe they're doing this, and in part they may be, but there again is this often unconscious bias that does seep in. And leaders, being human, are just as likely to be impacted by what is going on in their workplaces. Maybe there are strong personalities in the room that always seem to get a voice because they can dominate a room. Maybe there's a tendency to turn towards people who are like-minded rather than those with different viewpoints, because let's face it, that just feels more comfortable. And then there's the old, this is how it's always been done rhetoric that's really tough to shake, especially in large organizations. So maybe there are people who have always been the one making decisions, and so we continue to turn to them because of that history, even if the decisions that are being made aren't necessarily the best one. And therein lies the rub. Those people may be the ones that have always made the decisions. And by staying in that trap, history keeps repeating itself. We keep promoting the same gender, the same race, body type, sexual orientation, et cetera. And we need to start asking ourselves, why does this keep happening? Are those the only people who can make the decisions? The people making the decisions are the ones in places of power, and to shift to inclusion, they need to be able to see the issue, which may not be even on their radar because it doesn't affect them. The issue is privilege, and the problem is privilege is invisible to those that have it. That's so true. Privilege comes in a myriad of forms, including but not limited to race, to gender, to wealth, to physical fitness, especially within our organization to sexual orientation, education, and even height and body size, and as you said, potentially disabilities as well. However, the people who have those things are usually unaware of their power and their influence. If you do a scan on the internet or a scan around the room of the people involved in talking about diversity and inclusion, those people with the aspects of privilege we are talking about here 
are rarely part of the conversation. While those that have privilege may be oblivious to their inherited or inherent advantages, those who differ from the norm are always going to be made aware of their difference, whether it is, for example, because of harassment endured by women or the person whose name is not recognizable by the average Anglo person and has their resume overlooked time and time and time again, resulting in underemployment. Many of the traits that bring privilege are traits you're born with. Being born white and heterosexual isn't something you choose any more than being born indigenous and or gay is. It just is. American sociologist Professor Michael Kimmel says, let me be really clear. White men in Australia, North America, and Europe are the beneficiaries of the single greatest affirmative action program in the history of the world. It's called the history of the world. And I think it's important to note that Kimmel himself describes himself as a middle-aged white man. Exactly. I think it's so important to pause here and unpack privilege a little bit more because I know that a lot of people really get their knickers in a twist when we talk about privilege. As you said, it is what you were born with and into. It does not diminish or take away all the hard work and sacrifice that you had to experience to get where you are. But depending on who you are and where you were born, means your place on the starting line of life can potentially be way ahead or way behind others. And it's not a cause for people to feel guilt or shame, but simply to recognize and appreciate that those of us with more privilege need to be aware of that and all the biases that potentially come with it. And more importantly, we need to acknowledge that our role now as a result of that is to help others get to the place that we are privileged to be, again, not because of what we did to get there, simply because of who we were born as. Absolutely. And the end result of all of that is that we cannot tackle diversity and inclusion without having people who have privilege at the table and involved in the conversation. Let me also just say that Carissa and I are not DEI experts, but we have been doing our homework and we've been learning and we've been listening and we are trying to do things differently. And the first step is identifying whether the door allowing us to sit at the table is open, finding a way to open it. And then as people with some privilege, we need to walk through that door and take a seat at the table. Right. Which can be easier said than done. And I want to come back to something you said about those with privilege rarely engaging in the conversations about diversity and inclusion. And I guess my question is, is it because they don't see the issue or they don't feel they have a right to the seat. Some leaders with privilege don't feel perhaps that they have a role to play in diversity and inclusion efforts, or worse, that they don't belong in discussions about how to help less privileged people in their organizations. According to the White Men's Leadership Study, which that's just the most hilarious name of a study I've ever heard, a study of white men and diversity and inclusion, the single biggest challenge to engaging in diversity and inclusion efforts is knowing whether they, meaning white men, are wanted in the conversation. So that bias we're talking about is important for everyone to be aware of, because this has to be a conversation. And if you want the support of people with privilege, it means seeing them and making them allies rather than enemies. And let's just say that this is incredibly messy, because as we've said time and again, humans are messy. When the way things have always been done is threatened, people get defensive. Those 20-ton shields we've been talking about come out, and it's hard to get those conversations started or keep them going. 
And I just am reminded of a conversation that we had at a workshop that we just did in Suffield. And one of the members said that if you want to help a particular community, then you as a non-member of that community have so much more potential influence when it comes to standing up for that community than the members of the community themselves do because you have the privilege to be heard. And so I think if we look at it from that perspective, we need to take that role on and say, you know what, people are going to listen to me for whatever reason, and I'm going to speak on behalf of these others who are overlooked. And I think that when we look at privilege from that perspective, it becomes a real superpower in a, in a lot of ways. That's a really great point. And a really important consideration in all of this is the need to be able to offer psychologically safe spaces for privileged people to explore their identities and concerns first separately and then together with who have traditionally been marginalized. But what is a psychologically safe space? It's one where you can speak your mind, be yourself, and not risk judgment or ridicule or any of the other things that we fear that impact our security and belonging. Otherwise, absolutely, you will encounter defensiveness and a lack of full support. People need to feel like they can ask questions, get things wrong, but be open to the idea that there is a lot of learning and that there is an intent to learn and to do better. So once those with privilege have a better sense of how embedded this actually is, then it's easier to sit at the table with a better understanding of things that were previously, not again, even on their radar. And then you can get everyone around the table. But then what? What do we need to do to do better, to start to move the dial in the direction we want to be going? Exactly. Then what? I mean, this is huge, right? We're talking systematic change that will take years to get to where we need to be. But it's all about starting those conversations, taking those meaningful steps, and very deliberately doing things differently. We also need to acknowledge that we are just one person, that a single literal cog in the giant machine could be seen potentially as having very little effect. But think about if you throw a bolt into some moving machinery, what is that little tiny bolt going to do? It can do a heck of a lot of, okay, damage in this case, but it speaks to the fact that a single cog can still have a really big impact. So we need to start where we are. We can start by being inclusive leaders that make sure all team members are heard, creating a safe environment where people feel free to propose ideas, that employees are being empowered at all levels to make decisions that are appropriate for the level that they're at, that you provide actionable feedback and are open to receiving actionable feedback, and that we share the credit for the team's success. I think that that is a really key factor because... We need to ensure that that engagement and empowerment also translates into that sharing of the successes, because that's how you build the momentum and you want to keep that going. And that's how we benefit from that kind of inclusive leadership that looks at all of those pieces and considers all of those factors. Another factor we can begin to address is authenticity. It is vital to the health of our workplace. Consider for yourself, how authentic are you at work? Most of us spend a lot of our energy trying to repress parts of our personality at work to fit in. For example, many women in the workforce, especially women that are in male-dominated careers like science, engineering, technology, industry, and the military, find acting like a man, whatever that might mean to them, can provide them an advantage in becoming leaders in their field. 
This is such a lost opportunity. Leadership can take many forms. Each personality may approach leadership differently, but different doesn't mean ineffective. Opening our minds to the different ways of doing business might just turn out to be a highly effective change. Absolutely. But unfortunately, we are geared to find people like ourselves and push away people who aren't like us, that proverbial othering that you may have read about if you'd read my my blog on othering. I believe we don't push away people who are different because we don't like them. I think it is actually just fear, possibly intimidation, and a discomfort with things that are different. We feel this need to push them away because we believe that we need to protect our position in the group. Because again, that belonging, that being a part of something is so important to us. And it takes a great amount of courage to override this, to allow ourselves to be vulnerable and to be curious about those that are different than us and about ourselves and why we feel this way. We end up having to face those unconscious biases, which are difficult to recognize and acknowledge, let alone change. Pretty often, we don't really like what we see. It's important to get real with ourselves and then do the work to improve the situation because nobody said it was easy. We've only begun to scratch the surface of the issue. And dare I say the problem here, there's so much to do that you would be very well served to check out the many podcasts by people who are way more knowledgeable than us on the subject or who have had guests on their own shows who are. So I would encourage you to check out podcasts by Adam Grant, Simon Sinek, Brene Brown, all of whom you have heard us talk about and many, many more. And I'll be sure to add those links right under the podcast tab where you can find this on our CAF Connection page. So as we close out this talk, Heather, knowing that we've only just begun to scratch the surface, what is the one thing you would suggest to our listeners that would have the greatest impact on shifting workplace culture towards inclusion? Hmm. Well, I'd say much of that improvement comes through effective communication. We need to create an open conversation and give people permission to be a part of it. So if I had to make one, only one suggestion of something we can all focus on, it would be open dialogue. Everybody has some skin in the game of diversity and inclusion. When you recognize yourself as diverse, you're in the game and you can't undo it. I think you can usually tell the difference between a question or a comment aimed to hurt you and one that is coming from a place of wanting to understand you better and improve things. So be open to that conversation. We are connected by the simple fact that the one thing we all have in common is that we're all unique and we're all different. We can all learn something new about each other. And if you are fortunate enough to come from a place of privilege and want to learn more about the others that you work with, ask questions, but carefully consider the impact of what you're asking and how you're asking it. Very wise words from someone I learn from every day. Thank you, Heather. I'm not saying that just because it's what I should say. It's because it's true. I learn from you every single day. I think that the key to those conversations is to approach them from a place of curiosity. And I think we've heard that word used a couple of times throughout this particular episode, because when we're curious, we are less likely to come across as offensive or aggressive. And that means we'll be more likely to be met with understanding and a desire to teach or explain. I've heard it said that it's our responsibility to learn. And I 100% agree with that. But in order to be a learner, we also need to have a teacher. If you aren't comfortable being in that role, recommend people or books or blogs or websites so that you don't have to do all of the work in helping those of us who don't know to learn. 
Because if you use those blogs or websites or YouTube videos or whatever to do that heavy lifting, you'll be able to help those of us wanting to learn to get a broad and diverse range of resources without going down all of the potential rabbit holes and pitfalls that we often find when we we do that search on our own. I watched a documentary the other day about the Arctic and climate change and the loss of sea ice and what that means to sovereignty. And one of the people they interviewed was a 101-year-old Inuk woman who still went out on the land to gather berries. She was incredible. She was literally in this like neon colored snowsuit sliding down a hill with a basket to collect berries, 101 freaking years old. It was awesome. I mean, that in and of itself was amazing. But what really struck me was her wisdom. She said that one of the most important things we need to learn is forgiveness, because without forgiveness, there can be no peace. And while inclusivity isn't specifically about peace, it is about coming to terms with being different, as Heather said, and embracing those differences, being okay with it, and making peace also with our mistakes, the mistakes of the past and the pain those mistakes may have caused. Forgiveness with the desire to move on and be and do better is good for all of us. We all have a role to play in this, and we all have a responsibility to take that seat at the table, to make our communities where we live and work better, more inclusive, more respectful. Hopefully this episode has created some tension or some discomfort because that's a sign of learning or recognizing some of those unconscious biases that you may have, which is the first step to being able to do something about it. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end of what might have been the toughest conversation yet. Looking forward to bringing you the last episode of season four, and it is actually about dialogue. So I really hope you'll join Jeremy and I as we finish off the season. So hopefully you'll tune in again then. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, and we'll see you on the flip-flop.